Well, good morning, everybody. Are you wearing something you got for Christmas? I'm not, but I still think I look pretty good up here. But uh, no, my uh, now I've alienated everybody. My name is Reed Jolly, and I'm uh, thankful uh, to be here. Lisa, who is my wife, and I are in the process of making Christ Press our home, and we just want to thank you for the warm welcome you've given us. So give it up for yourselves if you want, but uh, thank you. Well, uh, 2019 is behind us, right? And uh, aside from some scuffles in Washington, I don't know if you've heard about them, uh, when I say all is well in our country, we're, we're living during amazingly good times. How old are you? Nine. We are living in times that I think you will tell your grandchildren about, about how great these times are. Do you mind me picking on you a little bit? Is that okay? You do mind. <laughs> yes. You say, yes, I do mind. Okay. I won't then. I won't look at you again. But, uh, <laughs> but at any rate, uh, if you compare today with a decade ago, uh, right at, 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 2000, uh, at the end of 2009, uh, we had 423,000 jobless people in America then. Today, we have about half that. Uh, oil was $80 a barrel back then, adjusted for inflation about $100 a barrel. Uh, today, even after what happened last week, just about $60 a barrel. The Dow Jones Industrial Average, it's an indicator of how we're doing pro in prosperity, was at about 10400 Today, 10 years later, about 28000 In the old days, you had to actually wave if you wanted a taxi. Very cumbersome. Now you just get on your phone and an Uber or a Lyft shows up and takes you there very inexpensively. Alexia or Alexa had yet to be born. So you had to pick your own song. She wouldn't tell you a joke or anything like that. I mean, even our fires are better today than they were then. We had the Jesusita fire in 2009. 80 homes burned to the ground. Uh, this last cave fire that we had, only one guest house burned. Uh, streaming was in its infancy. You actually had to use a remote control, and, and it was rough. But you, now you have Netflix and Amazon Prime and a panoply of other options like Disney and YouTube television and so on. The iPhone then was one year old, and it, was, it didn't do very much. And today, you just look at your iPhone, and it comes on, and it knows who you are. It tells you you look good. <laughs> uh, and today, you can get on a Boeing 7, what is it, 787, and that will make a 20-hour flight to just about anywhere in the world, should you ever desire to sit on a plane for 20 hours straight. <laughs> who would want to do that? But we're not at war. We have full employment, we have low inflation, we have low interest rates, and Target came to Goleta. <laughs> I mean, that's really good. But the danger of good times in which we are, and you're going to tell your grandchildren about them sometime, and that seems like a long way away, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. The danger of good times is that they will be too good, too satisfying, and too distracting. Annie Dillard, decades ago, said this. She said, there is an enormous temptation in all of life to diddle around, making itsy-bitsy friends for itsy-bitsy years on end. It's true. So we live in an era of gold. We've got lots of it, but devoid of glory. Ten years ago, Google was not yet a verb. It was a noun. And now we need a map on our phone to find lunch. 
A lot of gold, but no glory. Itsy bitsy lives. I lives. Filtering everything through a little screen. Well, that's, I guess, a, a positive and a negative backdrop for, for a, a passage of Scripture that we're going to look at today. And I believe this will transform our lives if we let God get a hold of it uh, in, in us, in our hearts. So uh, hear the word of the Lord. I'm going to leave you seated. But when I'm done, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And you will say, thanks be to God. Okay? But, but here's the passage. Very familiar if you have a Bible, turn to Luke 2, maybe when I'm done, because I want, we're going to look at it specifically. But I think you'll do better if you just listen to it at the outside. But this is from Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This is the first registration while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. <laughs> and an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ, the Lord. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Come, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it, wondered at what the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard as it had been told them. And church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Wow. Well, the story is as familiar as it is fantastic. If you are as I am, you've grown up with that story, and you heard it all your life, and you know even more than it's there. You know Matthew's account, and you know there's these wise guys that come from, from Iran, and, and uh, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh, and 
And you know that Jesus goes to the temple and you know this bad guy named Herod brings some soldiers to town and then Mary and Joseph flee to Egypt. You, you, you know all that. It's just kind of in your heart. And if, if you were raised that way, praise God for that. It's a very, very familiar story. At the same time, it's also fantastic. Now, fantastic is an adjective that comes from the noun fantasy. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't stone me as a heretic. Luke wants us to know that this really happened, right? I mean, is it, is it anyone's life verse when it says, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. <laughs> is, that, is that one you just take home with you and put on your refrigerator? But, but it's important because Luke wants us to see that it really happened. But the elements, oh my, do they not sound fantastic, like a fantasy? I'll tell you a story. A couple years ago, Lisa and I, we, we've had a habit of inviting our street over to our house on Christmas, or near Christmas. And we have 13 houses on our street. And uh, one, a couple of years ago, these, these newcomers to the street, they brought in their daughters. One was, I think, 11 and one was 9. And fire's on and we have hors d'oeuvres and just basically welcome everybody and celebrate Christmas a little bit. And these two girls, young girls, came over to our little manger scene, and one of them, and I went over with them by the fire, warmest place in the living room. I just wanted to care for these little girls, but I was with, by the fire with them. And one of them said, what's that? I said, oh, that's a manger scene. What's that? I said, well, that's Mary, that's Joseph. Who are they? I'm thinking to myself, this is great. I'm going to get to share the gospel on Christmas with, with my neighbors. <laughs> now, you try to go with me. Well, you see, Mary is a virgin, and she just had this baby. And the baby is a real baby, but the baby's also God. And you oh, those shepherds, they were out in the field, and this angel showed up, and glory, and they sang a song, and do you see it? Do you see how fantastic the story is? They had no knowledge of what we call the Christmas story and take for granted if we've grown up with it. And suddenly, this preacher dude realized, this is quite a story. This is not something that, that happens every day. A virgin with child, angels singing, a baby who happens to be God himself. It's fantastic, but what if it really happened? What if God really became one of us? That's the miracle of Christmas. I've just discovered a new book. I'm going to commend it to you. It's called Knowing Christ. Have you heard of it? It's, called, it's by a guy named Mark Jones. He's a PCA pastor in Vancouver. I think he's a South African at the same time. But it's, a great, it's kind of a sequel to J.I. Packer's book, Knowing God. Tremendous book. But listen to what he says about this baby Jesus. He says, the incarnation is God's greatest wonder, one that no creature could have ever imagined. We wouldn't have thought this up. God himself could not perform a more difficult or more glorious work. Archbishop of Scotland, Usher, James Usher, in the 16th century said, the incarnation, the baby that is God, is the highest pitch of God's wisdom, goodness, power and glory. 
I mean, is this not among the most shocking stories you've ever heard? God becoming a baby in a feed trough? That's what a manger is. Okay, you have your Bibles open. Look at your passage real quickly. Try to look at the whole thing and, and ask yourself, what do you think the key word is? Is it Joseph? He comes up two times. Mary comes up three times. The angels come up four times. The word baby comes up twice. The word child comes up twice. Manger comes up twice. I I don't know. We could have a fun argument about it, but I'm going to suggest that the key word is glory. It comes up in one way or another three different times. The word is at the heart of the story. Look at verse 9. The glory of the Lord shone around them. Now look down to verse 14. The angels sing, we just sang as well, glory to God. And then when the shepherds go home, verse 20, the shepherds return glorifying God. You know, that's just the beginning, by the way. In Luke's gospel, he traces out the glory of Christ from page after page after page. I mean, just a couple of examples Uh, Shortly thereafter, Jesus is taken to the temple, and an old man named Simeon sees the Christ child. He's been promised that he would see Messiah before he dies. He sees Mary and Joseph come in to consecrate Jesus, and he takes the child and he says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for Glory to your people Israel. This is the glory of God in a baby. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus is transfigured. He's transformed. He's glorified before Peter, James, and John. Okay, every sermon should have a main point. I'm going to give it to you right now, and you can get it. Christmas is all about the glory of God. That's eight words. Do you think you could say those with me? Christmas is about the glory of God. I took one out. I'm sorry. Christmas is all about the glory of God. So when I was growing up, you know, kids love to get presents and grown-ups love to get presents. So you have 11 and a half months to shop for me next year. But uh, we'd always in our family talk about what's the true meaning of Christmas. Well, it's right here. Christmas is all about the glory of God. Now, at the center of this passage, and we miss it because we're so inoculated, is is this paradox that glory is in a feed trough. That just doesn't make sense. That central paradox of all history that the glory of God would reside in a feed trough designed for, for feeding cows and whatever other animals are in the barn that paradox is teased out in three different ways in, in this passage. God's glory is terrifying, yet alluring. God's glory is enfleshed, yet it is veiled. And God's glory is satisfying, yet it is incomplete. So are we we ready? God's glory is terrifying, yet it is alluring. Look at verse 9. There's a very curious phrase there. The glory of the Lord shone around them. (laughs) What did it look like? Was it thick? Was it bright? Was it dark? 
Well, we're not told, but we are told that the shepherds, as this glory shines around them, they're filled with fear. And the angel says, don't be afraid. I've got good news for you. The shepherds are terrified, but they can't stay away. They're terrified of God, but, but when the angels go back into heaven, what do they do? They say, let's get over there and see what's happened. You know, that, that theme redounds in Scripture. When Peter first meets Jesus, Luke chapter 5, this guy from the beach says, why don't you cast your net over on the other side? And they do, and they have more fish than they, than they can get into the boat. And Peter goes to shore, and he falls at the feet of Jesus, and he says, get away from me, because I'm a sinful man. So he's terrified of this Jesus. But the very next thing Peter does was leave his boat and his net, and he follows Jesus. Or think of Isaiah in the temple, Isaiah 6. He, he, he sees something of, of the splendor and majesty of God, and he's terrified. He says, woe is me, I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And God says, I need someone to preach. And Isaiah says, I'll do it. Terrified yet allured. Or what about Moses? God comes down on Mount Sinai and, and the whole camp trembles and Moses trembles with fear. And almost in the very next section, Moses says, God, I want to see your glory. I want to see your face. Did you experience something like that as you came to Christ? I mean, isn't this the way it is for us? There's an element of terror. If I really come to God, he's going to ruin my life. He's going to compel me to be holy as he is holy. But we can't stay away. God is irresistible. You might know the story of C.S. Lewis. He, he was born and raised a Presbyterian. Did you know that? And then his mom died when he was nine years old. And he lost his faith as a teenager and was a committed atheist in his 20s. But God started working on him. And as he writes his spiritual autobiography, he, he portrays his conversion as a chess, chess match that he lost. In fact, his conversion chapter is called Checkmate. And he says, I felt night after night the unrelenting pursuit of him, capital H, whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. God was coming in. He said, I felt like a snowman who was beginning to melt. He said, it, it wasn't a great feeling. And then finally, he yields to God. He cannot stay away. He says, I bowed and prayed, perhaps the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. Terrified and yet allured. With Isaiah, we say, woe is me. But with Peter, we say, Lord, you've got the words of eternal life. Where else should we go? Well, terrifying yet alluring. Second, enfleshed yet veiled. Now, enfleshed, E-N-F-L-E-S-H-E-D. I'm trying to avoid the word incarnate. It's a, that's kind of a Latin theological term, but same idea that God became flesh. Well, here would be a fun discussion for us. What are the most shocking words in Scripture? What do you, th I mean, we, we could have a good animated conversation about that. What are the most shocking words in Scripture? 
Well, how about these? John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is glory in flesh. We've seen it, John says. Or how about Hebrews 1, 3? Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Glory. But the glory is veiled. The people aren't too sure about him. We sing about this, don't we? Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. All right. I have it on good authority that Kyle has in his pocket a card that will get you free dinners at Cadario for the rest of your life if you can answer this question. And he will give it to the first person who answers the question, okay? For those of you who don't know, Cadario is across the street, one of the best Italian restaurants in the world. Here's the question. You ready? You want to play this game, don't you? Yes, you do. Uh, what did the shepherds see when they went to Bethlehem? Oh, I'll answer. <laughs> They saw a baby. Now you wish you would have said it, don't you? Because I'm going to be at Kadario most nights of the week. When the shepherds get to Bethlehem, what they see is a baby. No halo. No glow. This baby is not radioactive. They see a baby who is seven pounds, eight ounces. I just made that part up. But they see a baby that looks pretty much like every other baby born that year, cutest in the eyes of his mother and father. But it's a baby. He was, as you were, a baby born of a woman who grew hungry and thirsty and tired and wept. But this baby is lying in a manger. He's not thinking about the first and second laws of thermodynamics in the manger. This baby does not know who's mayor of Santa Barbara in 2020. I'm not even sure I know who's mayor of Santa Barbara in 2020. This baby does not know about 9-11 or the Kennedy assassination. This is a baby. What did the shepherds see? They saw a baby. Hear this, church. This is the sheer audacity of God to manifest himself in this way. Or to put it in psychological terms, this is, is the sheer self-confidence of the triune God to show up in a feed trough. Third paradox. This glory is satisfying yet incomplete. Now hear me out before you think me a heretic, but out in the field, the shepherds were passive observers. They, they saw the glory that shone around them. They trembled, but, but they become active and they go to Bethlehem and they embrace the glory. I like what Pascal said in the 16th century, what a long way it is between knowing God and loving him. And they go to see the child and they go home loving that child. They go home loving the God who formerly terrified them. They returned glorifying and praising God. 
By the way, this glory is not reserved for Mary, Joseph, and the shepherds and the wise men. This glory now goes public. It it goes out there. This is a joy for whom? For all the people, we read. So in Luke chapter 9, Jesus performs a miracle, and Luke writes that the crowd was astonished at the majesty of God. So God's glory now goes public. So just as the shepherds go back to the fields glorifying God, we too can go home today, January 5th, 2020, and we can go through 2020, and we can go through the rest of our lives, and we can go through eternity glorifying and praising and being satisfied in this all-glorious God. He's a great joy for all the people. When God became flesh, we then had the possibility of having true communion with God himself. If Jesus were just a man, well, he and we would be at an infinite distance from God. And if he were just God, well, we would be at an infinite distance from him. But by melding these two and becoming one person who is God-man, We can know God forever. Christmas is all about the glory of God. Get this, church. Get this. So good. So important. Not only is Christmas about the glory of God, the universe is about the glory of God. Furthermore, God is all about the glory of God. This is the fundamental discovery of every believer. God exists, and God's ultimate concern is God. It's true. The God who exists and made the universe and everything in it, the God who made you and redeemed you, God's primary concern is for his own glory. There was a famous mountain climber, one of the early ones that climbed Mount Everest, I think, 400 people climbed this year, but it used to be a big deal. Uh, And and he was asked, I forget the name, but he was asked, why do you climb Mount Everest? He said, because at the top, all the lines converge. That sounds kind of intellectual. Well, you want to know where all the lines really converge? They converge at the glory of God. Everything is to this purpose right here. Every flower in the Rocky Mountains, every wave that breaks on the shore of Goleta, Every man, woman, and child in India or Compton, every sunset in Santa Barbara, every drop of rain that fills up Lake Kachuma, every purchase that you make at Trader Joe's, every child that God gives you, every year that you live in a difficult marriage, all the longings that you may feel that are unfulfilled, every molecule in your body, Christ Presbyterian Church, all of these things exist to glorify God. That's their purpose. Wow, is right. Yeah. Colossians 1, 16. All things were made by Christ and for him, for Christ. Ephesians 5, 1, verse 5. God acts according to the good pleasure of his will. You say, well, how is God's will determined? Whatever makes him happy. Psalm 115. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory Our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. 
Psalm 136, the Lord does whatever pleases him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and in all their depths. Romans 11, did you hear that? Oh, what a passage. Oh, this comes at the end of three really tough chapters in scripture that proclaim the sovereignty of God. And I think this is Paul's way of saying, I'm not sure I understand what I just wrote. (laughs) He says, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given a gift to him that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory. For how long? Forever and ever. Now, to understand this is to turn our life map completely upside down. We were born, and we have an inherent sense that the universe revolves around us, right? Or is it just me? (laughs) And Paul will say, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of Christ. Now, do you see the wonder of Christmas? Now, some of you are saying, wait a minute, Reed. What about Advent and peace and joy and all this stuff? I, I, I thought this was about God's love for me. I mean, after all, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Have you ever heard that song? I mean, I've got, I'm the one that has hopes and fears, and they're met in Christ. Hear this. This is so important. Your desire for happiness, for fulfillment, for meaning, for purpose. Your desire for these good things and God's desire for glory, those two things fit together perfectly. The God who is worthy of all glory, honor, praise, infinite worship and acclaim, this God condescends enfleshed so as to save us from our sins. And that is our greatest joy, happiness, solace, satisfaction. It is found in him. So your desire for happiness and God's desire for glory, listen to this, it's thick. (laughs) Your desire for happiness and God's desire for glory are like a wife's passion for her husband's desire and her husband's joy in being satisfied by his wife. You need that again? Make sense of it? Your desire for happiness and God's desire for glory, that is like a wife's passion for her husband's desire and her husband's joy in being satisfied by his wife. So I'll illustrate. I borrow this illustration. It's not original to me, but uh, I've been married 38 years, and let's just pretend next week Lisa goes off and she's doing some stuff. She's working all day, and I want to I celebrate our marriage. So I, I go shopping, and I get all this food, and I buy a very expensive bottle of adult grape juice, and, and uh, I get a fire going, and I've got hors d'oeuvres, and I've got made a dessert, and all this mushroom stuff and food you can't even pronounce. And and I get it all ready, and I know she's going to come home at 5 o'clock, and the fire's crackling, 
and it's all ready, and I put that little foofy stuff in the pot and boil it, and it makes the room smell really good, you know? And it's just perfect. Candles are lighted everywhere, and she walks in and she says, Reed, why did you do this? And I say, Lisa, I love you. And nothing would make me happier than to do this and prepare this evening for you. And then she says, well, read, read, read. Why do you have to be so selfish? Why is it always about you and your happiness? You see? No wife would ever say that. Her joy is in my joy. And my joy is in her joy. And this God who is all sovereign and all glorious, he desires to be glorified. And he is most glorified when we are most happy and satisfied in him. The two work together perfectly. As Jonathan Edwards put it, he said, the enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven, fully to enjoy God, is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Then he spells it out. Fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends. He says, These are but shadows, but God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but scattered streams, but God is the ocean. All right. The glory of God is a paradox in this story. Glory in a feed trough. Terrifying yet alluring, enfleshed yet veiled, satisfying, and I haven't gotten to the, 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 the zinger here, yet incomplete. The glory that the shepherds saw in the manger was glorious, but incomplete. Let's think a little bit. Does this glory that the shepherds see, does it transform the shepherds? Well, a little bit, right? I mean, they go back to their fields glorifying God and praising him. That's good. But you know what happened? Uh, One of them wasn't pulling his weight and he got fired a month later. And then the next year, the price of wool went down and all of their wages were cut. And eventually they all retired and moved to Beersheba where the climate was a little better. And they told this story about something that happened a long, long time ago. They needed, hear this, they needed a greater glory than what they saw in the manger. Am I committing a heresy here? No, I'm not. Think about John's gospel. In John's gospel, one of the key words is the word hour. Jesus, they have no wine. Woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And and about five times in the gospel, we find out Jesus hid himself from them because his hour had not yet come. Uh, He says several times, my hour has not yet come. Finally, in John 11, some Greeks come to him. The whole world has gone after him. And Jesus finally says, the hour has come. What hour? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You say, yeah, now I'm going to figure out the hour. He's going to be glorified. Next verse, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's talking 
about the glory of the cross. And a few verses later in John 11, he says, and I, if I am lifted up, we could translate, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And just so that we don't miss the point, John puts in a little editorial comment. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. All right. We have glory in the feed trough. It's there. But it's incomplete. When is it complete? It is complete when the Son of God atones for your sins and for mine, for all who would come to him in faith on the cross. That is the moment of the supreme revelation of the glory of God. And when we see that, we are changed for eternity. Have you seen that glory? Have you embraced that glory? Christmas is about God's love for us. It is. And here is how his love is manifested. The all-glorious God freely chose to bear our penalty for sin in himself. And that's the supreme manifestation of his glory, that he's a God like that. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Let's pray. Well, God, as Christ Presbyterian Church, we want to commit together as a people and individually to be a people consumed with the passion for your glory. And as we begin 2020, we, we commit ourselves to magnifying your glory together. Lord, teach us in 2020 to cleave to you and to you only. To be men and women who love you more than we love our work or our play, our exercise or our health care. To be men and women who don't care how much money we make or what kind of car we drive, or even if we live in Santa Barbara. Uh, make us a people who don't care about expensive clothes or exotic vacations, and we ask that you would purge from us our delight in, in what we might call the fruitless joys of the world. May we be stunned into silence by the riches of your glory provoked into submission by your awesome, awesome sovereignty, comforted by your comprehensive providence. And God, if there are any in this room who have yet to see this glory, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would work in those people's lives right now and that they would go home with the shepherds, glorifying and praising God for all that he has done in Christ. Amen.